like pirating, I think, was a pretty big thing back in the day. It's harder to pirate now, just with the way that consoles and I'll talk I'll talk to you after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Glasshouse Game Show, recorded in London at Glasshouse Brick Lane. I'm Shay, and today I'm joined by Alex P. Hello. Alex CG. Hi there. Matt. Hello, gamers. And our wonderful special guest, Alicia Judge. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for people who aren't aware of you, somehow, uh, mm. could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my name's Lysia. I am a producer. Uh, I used to work at IGN and I went freelance and I'm now currently working with Netflix, which is really fun because you get all that juicy Witcher content before <laughs> anyone else. Like, um, But I literally, I make YouTube videos basically about uh, anything to do with entertainment, video games, film. Lovely stuff. Uh, so with the new gaming console generation literally around the corner, by the time you hear this, both the Xbox and the PS5 will be out. I thought it would be good to chat about something that everyone's been aware of for ages, um, but has only started talking about in like the last, I don't know, couple of years or so. And like a lot this year, because we've had time to think about that, what with the lockdown and all. Uh, and that is how gosh dang expensive games are how expensive they've gotten over the years and how that's impacted the industry and what the potential solutions are. But before we do that, Alex, what have you been what have you been doing in the last week? Oh, yeah. you heard. You were following me. I, I was stalking <laughs> you. I totally uh, was. Yeah, my, it's that time of life again. First time, uh, my girl needs to go to school. So I'm visiting schools. Cute. I'm visiting little girl schools. I guess it's both... <laughs> everyone everyone schools and um it's uh it's kind of surreal actually mm. because of like it has to be it's only us um my my wife and i uh and like a a host in the school like there can't be anybody else because of you know they're they're in their own bubble the whole school mm. and it's just weird walking around children's schools it's, <laughs> like it's completely empty yeah it's yeah. like the beginning yeah. of a horror film um very topically with it just being halloween i suppose yeah i was gonna say that's a tie <laughs> into so many things halloween and also the fact that we're going to be talking about schooling in just a bit um but i wanted to start the chat off with like you know what was it like for us growing up um and sort of like having to buy games i know that personally growing up like working class in tottenham i'd literally have to like save up my lunch money which wasn't that much like for weeks sometimes like months in advance to buy like a new game and by the time i had the money for it it would be like it wouldn't be new anymore you know and and that was it all the time i, I felt like i was always a game behind always like a console behind except for i think when the original xbox came out and i just wanted to know like what people's experiences were like growing up and trying to buy games you did just remind mm -hmm. me though of something that there wasn't the same kind of hype for a new release before because mm -hmm. like then where now obviously there's people know that a game is coming out years in advance and then when you're a kid when i'm thinking about it i only knew a game came out when it came out pretty much yeah and that's when you would start saving because you wanted it versus like knowing that whatever game is coming out at the end of the year and starting saving for it 
tangent, but I just you kind of blew my mind there. <laughs> I I, uh, my experience was I would read official PlayStation magazine. Mm. I probably read about games a lot more than I played them. Mm. And so I would be the kid in school that was like, oh, I heard that they're bringing out a new Metal Gear. Like I was, I was that one. That was, mm, but that was what was sorry. That was what was so great about you know official PlayStation magazine having the free demo mm, disc. Absolutely, you know uh, that there were so many games that I never bought the full game because I didn't have the money for it, and I'd just replay the demo over and over and over again. I remember back in the day, the like I feel like the way I consumed games media was through like Pravda. You know, it was like the official state organs and Nintendo Power shit like that, where it's like. You know, it's just they're they're just selling their products, but that was probably the most hype you would get would be for a major franchise coming out, like the next Zelda or the next big Mario game. But I do think, and I'm sure we're we're gonna get into this, but renting games was such a big thing that I remember like even like growing up in like a relatively comfortable middle class context in the U.S., like we weren't allowed to buy games all the time, and you had to mm. we, like we could, but we could justify renting. So we could say, oh, to drive us to Blockbuster and let us rent this game for this week. And that was sort of our, we could just keep renting it week to week as our way of playing the game. I wonder if that culture is, I mean, obviously the game's landscape is completely different now, but there's something about that that I miss a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I guess the equivalent now would be these sort of services that we've got, like Xbox Game Pass and these sort of streaming libraries that you now have access to, where essentially you're not owning the game, but you're still able to complete it. Um Online, I guess that would be the modern day equivalent, but there is also a romantic nostalgia about having to complete a game in a certain period of time if you were renting. You know, did you ever find that you were racing against the clock to complete a game before you had to hand it back? Always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had the the reverse of that happen, where I think I'd I'd rented uh, Jack Two for the PlayStation Two. Oh, such a good game. It's fantastic. Um, but I'd. Um, it might have been two or three. Sorry, I might be misremembering. But I remember renting it and then realizing that I really liked it and then wanted to own it as a full copy. So I like, you know, spent the Christmas money on it finally. Um, and then I finished it the day that I'd properly bought it. So completely, complete waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think renting in the 90s saved my allowance, so much allowance money. Uh, and I mean, not just when I was a kid, when that should have saved me from asking. I used to be into cape shit, actually. <laughs> and I remember I got Superman 64 as my very first Nintendo 64. Ooh. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and I, I specifically remember going to Blockbuster and it being there to rent. But I was like, no, I'm getting this for Christmas. <laughs> I'm not going to rent it. Goodness. And uh, renting, I don't know, Battle Tanks or something instead. But um, that, I think, was a really important aspect of just trying all sorts of different things without having to need to buy them. When I was trying mm. to make it as a games journalist during my university years... Was Blockbuster still around? Yeah. So it, um, it allowed me to stay current with the games that were coming out every Friday when I knew that there was a big release coming, I would walk down to Blockbuster like as it opened to make sure that I was the first one there so that nobody could have rented it out and then I could pitch a review like in theory. So that made it possible for me to like be up to date. And I don't know what the current generation of games journalists is going to do like help beg for codes i guess uh, yeah, yeah i think that probably is it like get a decent streaming career and then pitch that you can mm. uh, have an audience 
in some way that's a good point though in terms of like the the divergence between pc and console cultures as well because i think even back in the day talk about demo discs like i remember pc gamer demo discs and there was freeware and shareware and there was like a lot stronger culture of just you being able to try out a game before buying it and even i wonder if you know nowadays that culture is more advanced as well with things like itch itch.io and things like that like there's way more of a sense even steam you know surprisingly they're pretty good about like letting you play a game and allowing you to refund it if you if you do yeah, it within a certain hours. amount of time which some some companies like some of the big three are better or worse at that but there might be a divergence between those those things probably my favorite blockbuster memory if we're allowed to do this right now <laughs> yeah, <go for> <laughs> uh my my best friend at the time we were neighbors and we at the beginning of the summer uh you know summer break and everything blockbuster our local blockbuster was running a promotion i guess for um the new soul caliber game at the time and uh they were gonna it was basically if you could beat one of the designated blockbuster employees in a soul caliber match you got a free weekend a free uh game rental that weekend and so my friend and I would put our heads together and we decided to buy Soul Calibur <laughs> together and just practice for like, that's the only thing we did for a week, which a teenager at summer, summer vacation is like, that's just it's valuable. That's a hundred hours. It's a hundred hours of practice there. Um, and then we got so we got good enough. I don't want to say so good, but we got good enough that we, for the rest of the summer, we got free rentals because we were able to beat the employees. Nice. Two free, both of us as well. Two free rentals every week for the rest of the summer. It was probably my first investment that paid off. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the like the the cost benefit for Blockbuster about like losing a member of staff constantly for people that rock up and just want to play Soul Calibur with them. Like, um, well, I guess there was always two people there. I mean, it's a, it was the suburbs. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not like a packed Blockbuster of people with queuing up to Red Gladiator or whatever. <laughs> Um, I think one of the other really interesting things, we've talked a lot about games, but we've not necessarily talked about specifically console access. And there's a variety of consoles available now, but there were as well growing up, you know, and I found my family were very PlayStation oriented. So I have a really good knowledge of like the PlayStation zeitgeist, but I definitely found as a games journalist that there were times when I'd get the, you caught, you work for IGN and you don't know the Zelda mm. franchise because we didn't have Nintendo <laughs> growing up. You know, that just wasn't a part of my childhood. And I think that is something that we don't always talk about in terms of wealth and games. And, you know, if you're going to be a games designer and you're drawing on a history of games and the gaming canon, you know, the, the people who come from backgrounds where they're able to have one of every console and the exclusives that go with that have a leg up compared to others. Yeah, totally. Like I, um, I don't, cause I don't think I had like uh, very many Playstations growing up. I think I had a PlayStation 2 very late in its life cycle. I got a Xbox, like I think on launch cause my dad got me that. Cause I got like the best marks in my year, in my sats. Wow. Nice. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. We'll put that as one of your credits. In your, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Change your job title. <laughs> Literally. Actually Astrid, if you could put the lower right now. <laughs> Literally one of my greatest achievements. I don't think, I think I peaked at that point. <laughs> It was all downhill from there. Oh. Um, and so I remember getting like Halo um, 
and like playing that and that like blew my tiny mind mm. um i felt like i was like yeah okay cool and then people would talk about like other games they got and i just had halo and metal gear solid 2 and that was all i played because those were the two games i had on what more do you need honestly i mean yeah very good um very good year for games uh what i was gonna say is about like we touched on this very briefly in our conversation about jk rowling rolling whatever um <laughs> but we didn't like go all the way is that like pirating i think was a pretty big thing back in the day it's harder to pirate now just with the way that consoles and i'll talk i'll talk to you after yeah (laughs) 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 Um, but i was gonna say i guess for you know because we're obviously talking about this through a very western lens because you Mm. know that's that's what we have access to but i know that in the global south like this conversation is like amplified times a hundred because it's like they don't even have access to um, to a lot of the games that we're kind of talking about. Um, or if and they are, they're so expensive that yeah. they're just completely inaccessible. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is why you see like a lot of sort of piracy happen. I remember there's a version of Street Fighter 2 uh, Rainbow Edition, which is this mm-hmm. absolutely hacked version. Mm-hmm. Like pirated and hacked all the way. If we could play way, some right now. That would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, and just, yeah, I don't know if anyone had any like thoughts about that. I know CG, like you spend a lot of time in those communities, not to drag you or anything. I'm just saying that as a <laughs> You're fact. You're a pirate, No, right? I'm an unrepentant, I'm like, let's get the pirate party in parliament kind of person. Um, I... Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm always like, I really, anytime there's like some false binary thing, it's like, it's really annoying because you think there's, it's like the good gamers who buy all their games and then there's the mean gamers who only pirate them. When you look into it, it's just way more complicated. So there was, there was a documentary a few years back that's on YouTube. You can, you, we can link it that um, talked about Brazil's gray markets. That was a big thing of like how a lot of communities, you know, there, there, some of them are, you know, Brazil just has PS2 still. A lot of communities that is still a very popular system. And, yeah, I guess it's interesting too because you think about companies like like Microsoft that have, it's not like a, a secret or or it's an open secret in the industry that piracy actually increases their reach in places where they can't, they don't have the advertising, they don't have the boots on the ground, so to speak. It's through piracy and through that kind of like free you know advertising that they're getting that they end up cultivating communities and stuff. So I think I do think you're right that it is slightly more challenging now, but as we're seeing too, sometimes that that necessity of people who can't afford the games cultivates a culture that ends up being preservation for future generations because now like a lot of games that we companies have lost they've deleted their files or thrown Mm -hmm. them out you know because they just didn't think they were important they still exist because of the pirates you know so Mm -hmm. yeah i'm just i'm I'm, i think it's good to sort of remind ourselves that it's not just like a or even just it's probably the only piracy now is probably the only realistic way that you can play whatever like sega dreamcast game or even n64 it's not available through roms and stuff like that like you can't i mean sure you could go on ebay and try and track down whatever rare or weird game for from the 90s but is that really not piracy anyway i mean you're not exactly paying the person who created that thing when you're buying something on ebay Mm. ebay is the only buddy who's and the only person who's profiting Mm. off of it I mean, another thing to talk about within this conversation of global gaming and wealth is is mobile. I, a few years ago, I was in India um, covering a game development conference there, and their whole gaming ecosystem is mobile first. You know, where our touchstones of gaming icons will be like Lara Croft and Sonic, and so, you know, they're like the main character from Candy Crush. Like that's their. And and they freely say that they're like, you know, we love mobile because mobile is something that everyone has there. Not everyone has 
the infrastructure and the money to have, you know, a great PC gaming setup and a TV. And, have you ever had somebody ask console? you when the new Angry Birds is coming out? Just in general, yeah. like here yeah. or over Just there? Yeah. In casual conversation. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. We we tend to look down our noses at mobile development, but actually, when you think about it, some of the most creative and cool games of the last few years have been on mobile. You look at Monument Valley. You know that scored a slew of BAFTAs and can be wall art as well as being a fantastic game in its own right. And I think there's. I guess a level of creativity that developers have found in other regions uh, on platforms that we don't use as much. And it's that thing of, you know, how restrictions can lead to better things. Um, I think wealth can be an example of that. But uh, as well, like I was in Guatemala last year doing a talk on games careers, which is a very weird thing to do, to walk into a society and a culture you know nothing about and say, hey, let me tell you about the games industry. It kind of ended up being me learning more from them, I think, than anything else. But there was a boy there that was so inspiring because he, we were doing questions at the end and he was like, uh, I have a question. Um, so what do you think the impact will be of like manufacturing shortages with this next console generation? So like 4K technology, how do you think that that's going to be uh, used in streaming? Are we moving towards a streaming game service? And like, will 4K be quite different? He had like all of these like such switched on questions that I was you like, over your child, cards, right? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good so point cool. though. I think that's a good point because this is kind of the double-edged sword that maybe maybe we can also get into is that there's a way that there's an increase in accessibility. I think you kind of talked about that in your article uh, as well of, you know, being able to buy a digital only version of a system means you can, you don't have to pay as much, but then also what is it, what do you do in places where, you know, internet infrastructure isn't what it is in like urban areas. So it's, it's, it's both a ethical question of like, what does it mean when you don't own any of your games and they can be like deleted off the servers at any time, but also just in terms of access, it's really good for some people. But then for other people, like they're still getting, yeah. I, I have friends in the US who are still getting like 56K modem level internet, you know? So if everything goes like that, then those people get left behind. So how do you sort of bridge the gap between those communities? Totally. And, and I think everything that we're going to talk about in this conversation, it's there's things that the games industry can do. And there are a lot of issues that are systemic, whether it's technology access. I'm sure later on, we'll talk about things like race and gender. Like there's, there's a lot wrapped up in this conversation and there's stuff that the games industry can do and there's stuff that needs to change with lawmakers and mm. uh, engineers and policy providers. Absolutely. Let's take a break. I'm leaving absolutely in. <laughs> no, That's absolutely staying in. Thank you. 
So earlier on, somebody mentioned diskless consoles. I can't remember who, but I'm sure it was someone important. We're all important <laughs> in this room. Um, but like, because there is a massive pivot to like diskless and like digital only consoles. But I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. Matt, you have, you have a take about this. I find myself having very counterproductive arguments. Um, generally, in my day-to-day life, I try and be as least wasteful as possible. I think about global resources and uh, trying to use the rare ones as little as possible. But moving to an entirely disc, sorry, removing discs entirely from the gaming landscape, it seems as if it will, um, it won't benefit people that don't have a lot of spending money. Mm. Like I, when I have a disc, when I've bought it, I still have the value of that disc when I eventually trade it in. And I think that an attempt to, uh, on console manufacturers' behalf, move to an entirely disc-based system isn't, um, they're not factoring in the ecological impact even slightly. The the thing that they're factoring in is that they get to make a closed system of sale. Mm. The only way that you can have a reduced cost price of the game that you're buying is when it goes on sale on that platform. Otherwise, you're locked into the initial price and if that's a nintendo game good luck yeah it's never coming down (laughs) whereas you should the the ideal scenario should be that the the manufacturing costs entirely come out and that reduces the cost of games but then there's a knock-on impact of that of putting game stores out of business yeah um and that even from a marketing perspective which is my background um without having a a game on a shop storefront there's no ability if there's lessened ability for your game to even be visible to the average consumer so i like the idea of moving to a completely discless future but i'm really worried about what that will do for games as a landscape so how what do you guys think of subscription and streaming services because because i agree like that there is something that's being lost in being able to resell your games. That is a really vital part of even being able to buy secondhand a discounted game. That really helps if you have a smaller income. But then you look at Games Pass on Xbox and you get access to over 100 games, including launch titles for eight quid a month, which is amazing value. And from that perspective, you know, you don't even need to be buying full games or secondhand games it's, it's all sort of wrapped up in that price which is a, it's cheaper than most phone contracts yeah. um yeah i'm wondering Do you think whether that that the place of exploitation exists there doesn't that allow for greater argument down of the amount that a studio will be making because they aren't charging as much to be able to play their game mm-hmm. like they'll have greater access mm-hmm but they won't necessarily be making as much money. I just don't think that the economics of that works in studios' behalf. I, I don't know the the economics of it, but I guess I'd look at models like Netflix of we moved away from discless, you know, people don't really buy DVDs anymore, but you're still having big blockbuster titles get made. And actually the Netflix model, you know, Netflix originals make, a lot of money and have big budgets behind them of course um, and in that, some ways are um, better supported does that benefit netflix as a whole um does that um price out any independent studios that wouldn't be able to uh, or, or does it do the opposite or does it give independent studios a uh, a way to get in front of people that they otherwise wouldn't be able to i think it is that. yeah i, mm-hmm. I think um I, I think it's it's two things one is that it is i think it is the long game from like netflix or in this case Epic or Xbox with their different um, 
with their different plans because with Xbox, I'm sure Microsoft is hypothetically, I don't know what their actual subscription numbers, but their plan is, is to get a bunch of people subscribed in mass that is much more, that would be more, it's because it's a, it's a automatic buy, right? It's a guaranteed eight quid a month from this, from the, from, I don't know, a hundred million people, or whatever <laughs> they're, they're aiming for versus the potential sale of a game that they would it's the gym membership model yeah they make more money if you don't yeah. show up yeah so at this point with i mean i guess it just came out of beta right the xbox mm -hmm. for xbox game pass for pc um at this point they might xbox might be running at a loss and just seeing it as an investment of they're still paying those all those developers that are putting on the game on their on their service and maybe that's at a loss maybe that's not but it's not about right now it's a it, it is about i guess microsoft working towards it being that closed system you could see a scenario in about three years time where people have chosen xbox because of this strategy yeah. instead of a playstation yeah. and then or as just they pc i guess of course Completely. but they have that they have that market base there for eventually when they do roll out something else especially because playstation plus is not great, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hidden aspect to this, though, that we're not discussing because, on the one, there is like the economic argument, right? So the idea is, oh well, you know, games cost a lot to make, so we gotta, you know, we gotta do something, and then the, here's an easier, more convenient way of doing it. But there's a really, really amazing and very depressing piece you can read on ProPublica that is an investigation into Microsoft's relationship with the IRS. And you, know, you can look into like the ways that you know any major corporation uses tax havens, and you know, they were found funneling thirty nine billion dollars into Puerto Rico, where there's like almost a zero percent tax rate. So when when you look at like can game companies afford to do things, I think they can. And I think if you look at the remuneration of their CEOs and stuff, Phil Spencer's valued at over twenty five million. They definitely can. It's just that in the current structure of games as they are it's hard to imagine. So you have to push the cost off onto gamers and then you can kind of do this thing of like, this is the weird thing because Game Pass is kind of amazing. Like it's kind of an amazing deal and it kind of, it's super convenient and it makes so much sense. But there is a little bit of that, I agree with you, Matt, the back of my mind, that slippery slope where I'm like, where, where is this going exactly? Because are we going to end up in a future where it's like, imagine not owning your own car or something yeah. or, you know, th your car could be taken away from you at any moment. Like it doesn't, we're that as is consumers, for we a lot get of people currently. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, no, exactly. But I'm just interested in thinking about again. I don't know all the details, but I'm just thinking about what are the real. Because I don't think the the only reason is because of costs. Because if it was about that, they could redistribute their own internal. You know, they they make hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars every year. It's it's more about trying to conquer a certain market. I think. Yeah, and, and maybe entire... they're working. Maybe they're succeeding at that. I don't know. Well, it's the whole. I mean, that is part of partially that. The Netflix plan, right? Like Netflix doesn't want to be reliant on any other studios. They don't want to be reliant on Universal or Disney yeah. when all those other studios are working on creating their own insular, uh, insular system. I mean, Disney's already doing it, obviously, with taking removing all their uh, content from other platforms and only on Disney Plus. And that could if only be Netflix wasn't so damn good. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the Microsoft thing. I mean, you already see them buying up swaths of developers, and if it's a thing where it's becoming that thing of it's Microsoft content that's on their, their streaming platform because they have so yeah. many developers. And it doesn't really matter about them paying developers because they're, it's their developers. Internal. Yeah. Ooh. Oof, that was a lot. I'm sweating. Well, I think we've solved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> no, I was just I was just thinking because I used to I used to work at HMV and um, I saw I worked there for a really long time and I saw the sort of the impact that Netflix had had on that store and it meant that like we stopped selling games because we couldn't because we couldn't compete with anything else um, and like everything becoming more digital and that led to the eventual downfall, I guess, of, of H&B because it did bring them in a lot of money. Um, and once that stopped happening, they <laughs> when stopped the, When operating. the game closed at my hometown, there was nowhere to buy games other than mm. like maybe the, a few that shows up in Tesco. But where was I going to buy like a weird JRPG? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Tesco wasn't going to stock it. So I could only yeah. go to Amazon. Like mm. That was the only way that I could get some yeah. weird stuff. And yeah. That yeah, is the eventual funneling point yeah exactly that um and you and i guess go on the the pressure then is on these subscription models these streaming based programs to make sure that they're prioritizing indies within it i guess it's like netflix just bought his house and put that on the service and has exclusive rights and it's this really amazing indie horror um that's was great at Sundance and now suddenly it's getting it's done so well on the service I think it was like one of the most watched things but it had a tiny audience and now Netflix has championed it it's gone big and I guess that's the responsibility then that Xbox Games Pass has and any other subscription models what you know that that launch it's you've got to champion that con that content underneath for sure it would be great too if you could own your if they could have some kind of data rights thing that goes along with that like if we're not going to get a physical copy of the game it would be great to at least be allowed to do whatever i want with the copy that i'm that I good right. luck with that one. <laughs> i'm just saying you know if they want to be consistent yeah. we've, ethically. we're uh, right next to a, a window because I, I can see a pig flying outside <laughs> <laughs> obviously that would be great yeah it's just i i there's a reason why they're working towards this this kind yeah. of of service and i don't think that giving ownership or more ownership to the uh to the consumer is is part of the plan i mean you were talking a little bit i mean before the show cg even about how that translated to like streamers and and oh creating God. content with video games <laughs> it's gonna be a whole other ghg show <laughs> <laughs> it could be. i love your optimism just, uh, though cg it's it's very endearing yeah. i think these companies need to be paying they don't need licenses they should be paying the streamers because the streamers are making them money in a lot it's of free cases, advertising they they're doing weak. labor for them <laughs> Wasn't there the whole thing about like Nintendo sending takedown? It was when yeah. uh, their streaming had initially started. They yeah. didn't see that they saw that it was a licensing issue because there was um, no no fair use as far as they were concerned that it was their content. Yeah, um, and only huh. when I think somebody sat someone down and explained the free <laughs> marketing cost, they <laughs> changed their mind about that. Well, look at the DMCA stuff that's happening mm. right now. I mean, it's like. There, there's just been a mass sort of DMCA strike on on YouTube and Twitch and other platforms for streaming copy, so you know apparently copyrighted music and stuff. But it's just it's again it's it could be another conversation. But cultures and communities grow organically through open access, you know. And the more you try and interrupt that, you get these really weird landscapes of like, the, you know, intellectual property is supposed to protect small consumers. But so it's only ever used to protect like massive companies. You we know, so. put out a video this week that has Shia LeBeau, as you <laughs> pronounced it, in the thumbnail and music from the Eric Andre show. And it's because the two references work. Like that's the connections that you make, yeah. make, make the joke work. But it's not technically legal, I don't think, for us to do that. <laughs> but you could argue that it's fair use. Fair but use. 
Um, hey, we're all about fair use on this channel. But that's how the culture of the internet works, mm. that you yeah. pack meaning on top of meaning on top of meaning. Okay, so how do we sit Phil Spencer down, mm-hmm. and we're just going to say, <laughs> listen to all of this, please, and, and, then every, and it'll just be fixed. And it'll be fine. So, you know, we'll get on, we'll hold hands, and that'll be done. Are we Solved. getting Phil Spencer on the show? Yeah, he's our guest for next week. That's All right, Phil, come on in. <laughs> um, yeah, to pivot massively, um, <laughs> just before the break, Alicia, you mentioned, um, you know, the intersections with race and class and gender that have like a knock-on effect of like who sort of grows up playing games and then who goes, goes on to make and talk about games. Um, in the lovely article you wrote for IGN, um, you, to- you spoke to two industry professionals and, you know, like, what was what were some of the things you found? What were some of the common threads that you noticed uh, talking to them? Yeah, no, they, they were super fascinating. So I spoke to uh, Chella Remanan, who works at UB Massive, and Erin Harrison, who's a level designer at Cardboard Swords. And the the whole idea of it, where we, we were talking about the cheaper consoles and how are they going to change the landscape of games design and development. And one of the things that came up with Erin, who she was working class, she's a black woman. She said that the her main route into games was through YouTube and watching Let's Plays and kind of actually not being able to play the games herself at home. But what both her and Chella said was that actually PC gaming would be the thing that it would be truly transformative, making that cheaper. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of these, in a lot of low income households, a console is a luxury item, but a PC is an essential. And PC gaming, therefore, if you can make that cheaper and make PCs that are good enough to run the latest games cheaper, and if you can make the game engines needed to mess around with game development and experiment and tinker with video game development in the same way that you as a teenager might write a poem or tinker on a guitar, you know, all of that stuff is is really, really important. Yeah, and I'd go even one step further to say that it's not even on the game development side. It's with like streaming and stuff and like content creation because like of the sort of games industry jobs, that's the one that's the most accessible because anybody could do it technically, not really. But um, you like in order to stream a game or to like, you know, edit a video to then put it up on YouTube, you need to have a computer that can do that. And a lot of people just don't. I know you can do stuff on your phone, but it's nowhere near the same as what you need Um yeah, is what you need to kind of make it big. And yeah, I don't think that that's spoken about enough, I don't think, no. Because there is a lot of emphasis on consoles. That's what this entire episode is sort of built on and around. Um, yeah. But yeah. How can you, yeah, how can a, because PC is one thing, but a a kid or a teenager or anybody who doesn't have access to at least university level tools mm. is probably not going to be able to make a PS5 game, right? Like they're not going to have the dev kit that while they don't have the same cost that they did for like the ps2 dev kit was like twenty thousand dollars or something like that um they're i think they're more affordable now but they still don't have access to that as well like just having the credentials for that versus on Mm. on pc you can get game maker toolkit or something like that off of steam so in this is where there is good news there is actually a lot of stuff that's being done to try and help um so you've got programs like digital schoolhouse that's so awesome um you know over sixty thousand students in the uk are currently being supported by this program that goes into schools and 
sets them up with computing lessons, like gives them game development basic skills. If the school is a really low income school in an area and it doesn't have like the PC lab, they've come up with a whole system of basic like pen and paper game design, like teaching the basics of games design without having to use a computer, which is amazing. Um, and like Yuki are also doing this huge push to try and get British game studios to donate their PCs mm. to schools because you know, game development, well, that tech turnaround's pretty fast. Like people have to upgrade yeah. their tech in studios every two years. And so if studios then give that to schools, schools have got these really amazing PCs for free that they can then, that come fully fitted with all of the game dev programming they need. And so it doesn't matter necessarily if you're uh, set up at home, if you're fighting with five other siblings for like the one family PC, you can stay behind after school or you can use your your school uh, kind of computer lab in your break to work on a game in the same way that you might go down to the music department and use one of their violins if you can't afford your own and you want to learn. You know, I think we need to start approaching game design within the school creative environment in the same way that we would music, drama, any other creative industry. Because like on that uh, point digital schoolhouse is amazing one of the um one of the programs they run is unplugged which is where they teach like binary coding through dance which is just amazing because it is taking this like really inaccessible subject and making it you know highly accessible for all of these kids and i would have loved something like that growing up because like the idea of games as a career like just wasn't it just wasn't like anywhere in my mind and um that's something i was going to bring up actually especially in the uk um it's very much ingrained in you that if you don't do well in your gcse's you won't go to college you won't go to uni and you'll have a terrible life um I wanted, <laughs> literally though because i was like oh my god at 16 like all of these choices like what do i do with the rest of my life um had to make them i just realized you were laughing because that sounded like hyperbole no but no but that's that's, that's legit really like, that's, that's real i was laughing because it like brought me back to when I was 17 and talking to my mother about this exact mm. same thing and the idea in her yeah. head that yeah if you're not if you don't go to to college that's the end of the world for you yeah and it's it's awful to put that on teenagers like, I was a dumbass I mean I still am but like now I'm a professional dumbass you know I get paid for it <laughs> um, I was gonna ask but you were topping sats in your school <laughs> yeah like I said it was all downhill from there I had a conversation with my family over Christmas about this about how um, with the cost of university going up mm. that somebody that performed in school like me probably wouldn't go no. now like there's no way that i would go when it costs like the amount that it does now yeah. with the grades that i had but yeah. like the access at the time was better so yeah. i did yeah, like, yeah. i can't there's just I no cannot chance imagine now nah. so yeah any um alternative measures that we can make towards uh, education that aren't the traditional university mm -hmm. route is not just good but necessary for yeah. the, the current generation for sure i was gonna ask like, how did we all how did we all get here to be talking about games <laughs> professionally. 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 Um, I, just, <laughs> I just shit posted <laughs> until I wound up here. What about oh, you want a real answer? I want a real answer, <laughs> please. As good as that was. Um, I think the, my first games journalism thing I did out of spite. Like someone else. So shit posting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone else had gotten a, like a community role doing stuff for a website that didn't pay them. Mm. Uh, and I didn't think that their writing was very good. So I was like, I'll do that. <laughs> and then I just didn't stop. <laughs> that's, that's it. Spite's always a good yeah, way yeah. to <laughs> forward your career. It worked to me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I ended what up. It separates here. us from the animals. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up here by accident, literally, though. Like, I made a couple of, like, really terrible YouTube videos. Like, I wanted to do this, like, my whole life. And I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> and then YouTube came along, made a couple of, like, really terrible videos. And then that got. Wait, like, are those videos still available? I'm not going to answer that question. They are. Um, and then <laughs> <laughs> it got, like, noticed by someone. And then someone passed that on. And then Bob's your uncle. Ooh. I'm here. Yay. Uh, what I think you're right. I mean, this whole the point of that sort of point is is correct. That like Bob's your uncle. There's certain kinds of people who like like myself and like you know other uh, Matt, Alex, and and others like you you know the games industry lets you see yourself in mm. it. You know, it's 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 a very heavily white and heavily you know perceived male and all that. And so I think the way I mean, I worked in like charities. I worked in um, nonprofits and like I was working in a when I first started doing game stuff, I was working in like a homeless shelter and I just wanted to do this in my free time because it was a passion. I started writing articles for HG 101 and stuff. But the point is, I think you're correct in saying there's a lot of people who almost might self, it's like a self-defeat before they even get started because mm. they're, because there's no image of like, how do you do this? And And even just thinking about having the free time and disposable income and you know, lack of stress or whatever it might be to be able to dedicate time to something like I'm proud of my accomplishments, but I'm also I'm under zero illusions that that I had a leg up, mm. you know, because I can even I was thinking about the kids I worked with, which is such a stark contrast. I would work with these kids. Some of them would be tr uh, bringing a, a hacked Wii U, a Wii console modded in their backpack around Chicago, around the city, just all day long and then coming to the shelter and plugging it into play. And I was like, look, I'm like, there's really no difference. Like, there's no reason why this kid couldn't do the exact same mm. thing. But there's just 8,000 more obstacles in their way. And we would have these debates. I'll would, I would be talking to them. I'm like, this, there's one in particular who modded the Wii console. I was like, this kid is a genius. Like, he, he knows how technology works. He has a lot of opinions about games. But it's just, you know, it's circumstance. It's, uh, you know, class and, and oppression and stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the things that UQ has done is they did a proper survey of the games industry workforce. It's the first time anyone's ever done it. Um, and they found that 70% of people working in games are male, 28% um, are female, and only 2% are non-binary. And only 10% of people working in game are Black, Asian, or minority ethnic. So, you know, just from a demographic front, it's super skewed. And then you look at the wealth kind of gap and 12% of the UK games industry workforce went to a private school, which is double the national average for any other industry, like including film and TV. So, and, and what's really cool about the questions that they asked as well, the survey, they didn't ask game developers. So are you working class mm, or upper class mm. or middle class? They very smartly said, what did your parent do? What, what was, what was their job? And they found that eight, uh, that 62% grew up in households where the main earner was in a middle class managerial role, which is really interesting. It kind of shows that we've got this quite privileged. Mm industry and, and and you know comparing it to other creative sectors like film and tv you know the games industry in comparison is set up more like law or medicine yeah. in terms of its privilege and i think that's that like that has a super knock-on effect in terms of the stories that we've seen like being told consistently like since games existed it, it shows you the kinds of people that work on the games and then like i said trickles down to the stories that have been told and you know like just the rife misogyny and racism that we saw in games 
like since their inception i think i really do think that has a knock-on effect because class doesn't exist in a bubble it exists alongside racism sexism homophobia all those all that fun stuff you know (laughs) is there a um is there a a generational thing with this so i mean obviously personal home computers in the early 90s were a very exclusive thing those were fucking expensive and even i guess consoles at the time um were you know whatever adjusting for whatever kind of thing but even just the the actual cost of them were as much or more than personal computers even and i i wonder if you know we're asking they're asking what your parents did which meant that yeah their parents could afford to buy them consoles or computers to grow up with and if we're seeing now more tools that are going into um into these kind of programs that we've been talking about does that mean that in the next generation that there's that there is more Mm. inclusion in uh in the industry is it actually are we pointing to something getting better or are we saying that there's that because of these other costs involved or these other barriers that are being put up because we're getting rid of discs and games and stuff like that is it just sort of a trade-off I think that the very fact that we're having this conversation is a really good thing. I think that wealth in games and the conversations around it, it's so timely to be having it now at the beginning of this console generation. And the fact that IGN are publishing articles on it and that game makers are definitely talking about it, about doing more paid internships, you know, going into schools. I know that Media Molecule, who make mm-hmm. dreams, they they go into schools and do talks on careers in games, mm-hmm. but they say to the school we're not coming into this talk unless you make sure that there are 50 50 male female like Mm. um students in that room and they make sure to go to schools as well that are diverse that Mm. like are in racially rich Mm. areas so yeah it's tricky because all of this talk has to be matched by action but i think the fact that you are seeing programs like digital schoolhouse the fact that um there are these concrete programs to combat it is good but obviously these issues underneath are systemic things like postcode lottery Mm. things like systemic racism you know it's it's not going to truly shift unless those things are shifted absolutely let's take another break (laughs) it's a callback We're back. So <laughs> we've never said that before. I just thought I'd try it. I We're like back. it. It's staying. I'm keeping it. I support you. I support you. I always wanted to say that, and I'm glad I did. Um. So, what more could the industry be doing? Like, in, like we've spoken about, like initiatives, like Digital Schoolhouse. There's also like into games. Um today the day that we're recording but not the day that this is going out on they just launched like this really cool initiative where they're supporting like more underrepresented voices in games journalism um so there are you know there's stuff like that uh that supports like new voices coming into the industry but what more could the industry be doing in terms of making games more accessible big question but we're big people not to this at some point our my our imaginary uh passionate fans that follow every single one of our videos uh they might get tired of me saying this kind of thing because I feel like I always say the same thing, but I feel like 
one important thing would be to not see games in a silo. You know, there's like a tendency in our modern culture to kind of look at like causes, you know, so you're like, ah, saving the whales, that's a cause. And then there's games should be better. That's a cause. But everything we're talking about is it's obviously all connected. We're talking about look at the things we brought up. We're talking about uh, pay scales and wages, you know, wage uh, stagnation is a thing that's happened for like decades. We're talking about, you know, unionization in my mind. You're talking about like ownership of the product that we're getting and the means of production and all that stuff. So like, I, I would hope that game people in games can start to see themselves as part of larger social movements to because all of those things improve conditions. You know, if, if being a streamer isn't something where you have to stream for 24 hours and like ruin your health and you are a contractor, not an employee of Twitch. And, you know, if, if working for a, a company is a viable job and is something that has benefits and is paid and all these things like that makes it more possible for people to, uh, you know, come in. So I would hope that there's been a lot of really good work on that already, but I would hope that with games unionization and with other stuff, we can link these things and maybe make it more accessible that way. Yeah, we we talked about a lot of we talked about a lot of stuff that developers or companies or the industry are doing, like with the media molecule thing or game devs donating um, their old studios donating their their computer equipment to schools and stuff like that. Um, and I think it is the stuff that so more of that. Yes, there are, is. I think what you are saying, CG, about the wider issues that can then affect all these other things i mean even just thinking about how games development is is like stuck in the the 90s era of computer software development i mean you look at computer software development now and it's in like silicon valley and it's all swimming pools and ping pong and stuff like that but in the games industry it's you know 20 hour days seven days a week and with and then getting laid off afterwards yeah yeah. um, Yeah, and it's it's like there's this there's, there's this diversion of that industry. It clearly needs to catch up. And yeah. why we should be asking why it can't. Why, what is it, what is causing those companies to not be able to catch up, right? Like what is so, what is it about game development that's so different than any other kind of software development when games make so much fucking money? Mm. They, they make yeah. more money than movies, you know? <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's I, a difficult I have arguments about this whenever there's conversations about crunch that uh, that come up. That uh, I, I don't mean to blame that's anybody that's in a precarious situation like this because it's obviously not your fault. You want to just do the right thing that you're interested in. But games are seen as such a like oh I can't believe I'm in the games industry. Like you work your you get your degree in programming just so that you can be making games. And game development companies are aware of that that mm-hmm. interest that this is your dream. So they can underpay you just because you you find that to be such a luxurious thing to be a part of, or you're you're so fascinated with the product of making games that you're you're happy to accept uh, these terrible conditions as a result of your passion, which will almost inevitably end up in you getting burned out. And it must be that combined with the fact that, as you said, you know, you have a much higher percentage of of middle class kids who are going into game development, a much a huge percentage of of white males who probably have a much more uh a safer sort of safety net around it where if yeah. you know if their parents are well off enough to have been able to allow them to be in that position they have that safety net if they can afford to work for 20k a year in shit conditions because yeah. it's something they love because they whatever still get an allowance at 25 or something like that where yeah. obviously a, 
a, a huge amount of people simply cannot do that. I mentioned sort of the generational thing, and I actually just remembered that like one of my favorite games this year was made by uh, I'm going to call them kids. I don't know exactly how old they are, but I know they just started making games, and it was made in Imagine game if makers. Imagine they're like twenty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, still kids. Um, <laughs> uh, but it made in Game Maker Studio. It's like a program you can just you can get mm. for your allowance money, um, and it's an in, it's a it's called Post Void. It's really good. It's okay. yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and it's like the cost of your commute into work. It's yeah. like three quid, um, and so things making great things, great pieces of art, is still is is still accessible to people. Yeah. Um, if we can make those tools more accessible, like great things can still come mm-hmm. out of it. There's not like a there's not a requirement, I guess, of of class or race or gender or whatever that you need to have to make great things it's just having having those tools definitely help Mm. and those tools don't have to be a university education they don't have to be a you know 2000 quid computer they can be something simple that just gets your brain started get your thing Mm. get get people on a treadmill i guess because like every time i've spoken to a, a games developer about this you know they're very passionate about you know wanting to have as many voices in the space as possible but they always say you know use what you have to your advantage and i do think that is a good point and like i think Alyssa, you said it earlier on like you know what's the saying is it uh creativity breeds innovation something necessity is the mother of that's invention. Some, that <laughs> something like very that, that. um <laughs> and i i think i do think that's true and that's ultimately the point that you're making because post void is a pretty good game um it was one of the ones at the indie arena booth which i hosted which was pretty good that's it's better than pretty good yeah no it's it's i don't know fine. if this is kind of related as well this other thought that just popped in my head but uh Werner herzog a very bizarre a filmmaker <laughs> has a has a film school where uh, the first lesson is how to steal your film equipment, <laughs> how to procure like the tools that you need in order to make your uh, to make your art. Because you know you can't just expect a hundred somebody to be able to give you or lend you or sell you or no, you can't buy a hundred thousand pound camera. But there's there are ways to you know guerrilla make things, I guess, mm. and and that that has to have some kind of of presence in game making yeah that upstart oh i don't want to leave it all to that i think i think the point where we're making is that you know there are options but we don't we don't want those options to be so hard and inaccessible i think is where we're at Mm. which we can all agree on right but we can say if you have the passion Steal Don't some, steal some shit. <laughs> so Alex is Alex is agreeing right now that he's like going to be renting out his basement to, to like illicit, you know, deals and <laughs> new Radeon and like GeForce video cards and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> start a metallurgy so we can start creating our own GPUs. Jesus. <laughs> so nutty. Um. Okay. Cool. I mean, that's. I feel like that's a pretty positive place to to leave that, right? Make games. Make games. <laughs> talk about games because we always talk about like game development. I'm too dumb to make games, and I was always too dumb to make games. But I can talk. Don't so say talk that. about them. Aww. Well, and actually, a really good thing to drop if there is anyone watching who's like, man, like I want to be a young game designer, and 
there's actually a competition for you called BAFTA Young Games Designers, um, which runs every single year. You could literally win a BAFTA before you are aged 18 and you do not have to have access to a really powerful PC um, or know any coding yourself because there's two categories. One's game making and the other is games concept. So a thing that we don't always talk about in the games industry is that you've got the hard skills like programming, but we really need people who can like communicate ideas, who can like produce, who have those soft skills, I guess. And the game concept category is a really great idea for that. Like the first step of making a game is convincing your team that it's a good idea. So pitch a game idea and you could win a BAFTA for that. And then off the back, you'll get mentoring. You'll meet a network of other people your age who are really passionate about video games and want to, you could kind of like form a mini studio together. There's, loads of success stories of people who have entered BAFTA Young Game Designers and have ended up winning a full BAFTA a few years later um, when they've ended up creating their own stuff or joining a really successful studio. can confirm some of the best like game ideas and like games I've played have been like judging that competition like it's it's tremendous like it's so good so cool so networking is a important thing oh god yeah (laughs) it's about who you know (laughs) <laughs> tricking yourself tricking people into letting mm-hmm. you do something well it works well, right right sounds cool. like, yeah it's cool <laughs> all right um yeah if no one has anything else and we're back <laughs> yeah, nice nice primer <laughs> um Toodaloo. yeah so you can send questions to us here at glasshouse games at community at glasshouse.games. We actually received an email from Aaron Urban who responded to our Patreon post about video game soundtracks. Um, I'm going to read this out. Uh, this is kind of long. but <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I'll, Urban. I'll, no, I'll be quick. <laughs> no, it's it's good. Like I read it myself and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so there was a point-and-click adventure game from the 90s called Lost Eden. I hesitate to call it a hidden gem since my experience of the game was watching a family friend play it through it, play through it when I'd been somewhere around six years old, but the art style, voice acting, and music have stuck with me for all these years. Um, Sort of skipping through, outside of the soundtrack that I found interesting, all of my all-time favorite soundtracks are Ocarina of Time and Joe's Mask um, and Kentucky Route Zero. I think they both do so well in fitting their respective games, but still manage to hold their own weight in a vacuum. Does anybody have any top-tier game soundtracks that they'd like to shout out? Ooh. Alicia, you were researching before mm. this. You were, you were trying. I to get was, some <laughs> I was, because I was like, I love the Last of Us soundtrack yeah. so much, but I can never remember or pronounce the name of the composer. I've got Google has told me it's Gustavo Santaolalla. <laughs> give up, give it to us. Santa Olaya. Um, we did this on oh. the show for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, just so beautiful, like that twanging guitar and just so melancholic and like, and the covers in the most recent game, like when there's a cover of Take On Me where they slow it right down and it's just acoustic with a guitar and you can really easily skip it. It's in like the open world section. So you might not even find it, but it's like completely changes the meaning of that song. It's like, ah, God, I love Last of Us 1 and Last of Us 2. Such good music. Big budget game soundtracks are in such a different place than they were in the mid-90s. Like, I think that really clicked for me 
like that reality clicked so much when D'Angelo was in the soundtrack for Red Dead Redemption oh, 2. Oh, yeah. And just like that, that I don't know, it, it drove this spike into my brain. Like, I mean, thinking about the soundtrack to Ocarina of Time, like um, uh, that the, the email was just talking mm. about and just imagining if, <laughs> what, I don't know. Uh, who would have been in uh, dropping a song like that or you know music like that in in a game mm. it it would feel so surreal almost like yeah. this mm. but that's what makes it great you could patch in dubstep remixes you know lo-fi hip-hop zelda remixes into the original <laughs> cartridge and see how it sounded Come on. my answer is always going to be weeb weeby it's like every you know my top three grpgs done you know chrono trigger final fantasy it's all it's all nobuo ematsu and Yasunori Mitsuda and these guys. Although I will say, Supergiant Games. Oh, they you have stole got my answer. A, they have got an eye for Bastion yeah, and every, Transistor. Every and deadline such amazing I've ever had. Like when it comes down to the wire, I put the Bastion soundtrack on because it just it just yeah. gets me the rest of the way. Like it just propels so the writing out of me. Do you get? Do so you good. try and get? like some of the narration over into it yeah, because yeah. i feel like that There's really narration on the soundtrack that was writing his article <laughs> yeah um, just rages for a while just because <laughs> it's relevant as well uh, i wanted to talk about uh, a thing that's in watchdogs legion um because it's like it's kind of appropriate for where it's set in london like you'll hear shut down occasionally which yeah it makes Amazing. sense for here um but i remember walking past the london eye and i heard a stall that was selling like london memorabilia doing that one song that's like three lines on a shirt <laughs> and it's like that will mean nothing to no one who's ever heard it but it's like it's so encapsulates like exactly that level of like englandness yeah that's a really good one yeah, actually. yeah. Oh, i'm gonna throw out uh ape out oh yeah that's and a good one mostly because it still blows my mind that that game doesn't have a soundtrack like in that it's recorded and that it's you create the soundtrack mm. with your intensity or fear or whatever and just how it how it reacts to your play style and it still sounds so fucking cool <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good um shout out to thumper as well that has a damn fine yeah. oh soundtrack. yeah great shout and yeah. in the same a similar same way that you yeah you, that it's you reactive sort of make to it, you yeah totally mine is uh streets of rage user kushiro any two Okay. no the first okay excuse me no it's so good like attack the barbarian is like in my gym soundtrack like <laughs> it's so good <laughs> i'm pumping some weights um <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our show pretty much uh if you have any thoughts that you'd like to hit us with or suggestions for topics you'd like to see us discuss comment directly under this video on youtube or if you're listening you can email us at community at glasshouse.games another shout out for that or tweet us at ghg show you can watch more of our shows on youtube or you can listen to audio only versions on your favorite podcast app Thank you to Alex P, Alex CG, and our very special guest. Oh, wait, I'm Maz. Well. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and our very special guest, Alicia Judge. Uh, where can people find you on the internet and what are you working on so people can go take a look-see? Click at those clicks. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just at Alicia Judge on Twitter. Very boring. Um, and uh, most of my work at the moment is on the Netflix UK YouTube channel. Got a bunch of video essays going live, kind of like diving into Netflix shows. Just written one on power in Rebecca and how oh, characters yeah. wield information rather than physical strength. Um, but is yeah. that show related to the Hitchcock movie? It is, yeah. And it's a show, not a movie. Mm -hmm. 
It is. Uh, the Rebecca on Netflix, yeah, it's a film that uh, based on the Daphne du Maurier novel. It's so good if you've not read the book and you are just love like gothic literature if you loved like haunting of hill house or something like just ah it's so good cool 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 check that out um thanks also as always to the wonderful amazing illustrious (laughs) 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 kit for making the show happen every week and to dan c parks for the music can i get a little bit more kit cam (laughs) <laughs> a little bit more kit cam as we uh as we end this hey. <laughs> um if you're enjoying our content and feel so inclined please consider supporting us on patreon which you can find the link to below i'm shay talk again soon Bye.